Hello and welcome to today's edition of Catacast. Today we will be talking about salmonella. I definitely as a practitioner vet probably underestimated both how common it is and such varied signs it can have. But today we have got Nicole Baldry from MSD to talk about it. So then Nicole, over to you. Hi everyone, so I'm Nicole Baldry. I am currently Dairy Technical Veterinary Advisor at MSD. Prior to that, I was in clinical practice for nearly eight years. So I spent most of my time practicing in the Southwest. I started off in mixed practice down in Cornwall, um, where I spent 18 months trying to avoid seeing horses. And then I moved up to Wiltshire, actually really not very far from where Cat is, and practiced there from 2015 until January of this year, apart from a short gap where I went over and did a calving season in the South Island of New Zealand, followed by a rather lengthy trip back home that involved going to places like um, Fiji and India and Myanmar and stuff. So that was... Oh, it all... sounds such a hard trip. Home, <laughs> no, it, was, it was very strenuous, yeah. <laughs> very, very tough. <laughs> Um, So you say right at the beginning of your career, you did some mixed practice work. That's something I'd never done. What were some of the good points you think that you learned from that? I definitely learned how invaluable a veterinary nurse is in life. Like, definitely. I think it gave me also some really good basic surgical skills, because obviously I was having to neuter cats and dogs and things like that. And I think that was actually quite invaluable now looking back at it. And also in terms of because you're trying to juggle going out onto farms and doing consults and things like that, I think you actually get quite good at being able to like balance and juggle your time relatively well because you do feel like you're a bit more I guess spread more thinly over many layers yeah no time organization and that how to prioritize different calls and how to bring things to an end at the right time is is something that I think we all struggle with so definitely I can see if you're you know uh, surgery based for some of the time then ambulatory you definitely learn that You said you were there for 18 months. What brought about the change going to farm-only practice? I've always been more passionate about farming and in particular dairy farming. Although I really enjoyed my job in Cornwall, I wasn't quite getting the level of farm work that I think I desired and wanted. So I felt like it was time for me to move. I had no particular ties in Cornwall. I just kind of moved down there on a whim as you do in your first job and also was quite like to get slightly closer to where all my friends and my life was instead of having to go up and down the M5 on a weekend so I think they were the big draws. No I think no matter how good the first job is having that support structure behind you is is so important isn't it? Yeah it is and I think I was very fortunate because I had quite a few friends that also took first jobs down in Cornwall so I, I think if I hadn't have had that I maybe wouldn't have been there for quite as long. But yeah, my first practice as well, I've made some very good friends. I still speak to a lot of the people I worked with there. That's nice as well. But yeah, just was missing the black and white cows in my life. Okay, so then you took on your farm specific job. What sort of key skills do you think you learned along the way there? You were there for quite quite a while. Yeah, so I was there for, apart from my short break, there for, yeah, really quite a long time. And I think while I was there, I really learned how to develop my relationship with farmers 
a lot of particularly my routine farmers are actually still very good friends of mine now I still talk and see a lot of them and I think that and just general dairy vetting and cattle farming practices just when you're fully immersed in that environment I think I just learned everything there was at the time that I could learn and absorb and really enjoyed it and I think ultimately that plus like my relationship I had with my farmers was why I stayed apart from my brief travels why I stayed for so long. So then you said about your travels what made you decide to a leave the job for a smallish amount of time and then b why did you choose New Zealand? I think the idea of working in New Zealand had always appealed to me and I'd been thinking about it for a little while and I had a couple of friends that had kind of gone and done it and spoke very highly of their experiences going over there and I think I was just at a point in my life where I was just like now if I don't do it now I don't think I'll do it and it was really scary like telling my boss that I was going to go because at the time I did like my job I think as you know like with clinical practice you get the I mean I practice in the southwest there's a lot of TB testing I think you, you do get to the point where you feel like it's just the same stuff I do think there was probably an element of that but I think I've always had a desire to travel as well and I just thought I feel I'm really fortunate that I do a career that enables me to go and try and do it in another country and yeah I've hit the south island of New Zealand because I thought I like being outdoors looks pretty great down there when else am I going to go to New Zealand and yes I pack my bags I remember being on the plane and having like sent my little dog to my mum and dad's to like look after him for a year being like oh my god I'm sitting on a plane to New Zealand I've like quit my job I've given back my house and my parents have my dog sold my car that's it (laughs) so yeah you'd properly left you hadn't arranged with your job that you would be coming back in six months or a year or no I thought because um I wasn't entirely sure how long I was going to travel for so I got a job to basically do the carving season so I, I did just shy of five months working yeah I just was playing the like traveling side a bit kind of by ear and how I felt and what was going on and I just thought I don't want to be tied to I have to come back at a certain time so yeah I just did it and went and was like oh yeah here I am in New Zealand yeah definitely it's quite a big brave step you you did sort of quickly brush over all of the organization that took like the the dog the house the car are they all things that were daunting at the time or how did you get around that because it seems like a massive life choice it was quite a big life choice I think I'm one of these people that I kind of put my mind to something and then I'm like okay yeah I'll do that and kind of just get on with it I think like it was big things I remember as I said I think the the dog side of things my parents took him um and they had a storage unit so a lot of like my furniture and things like that could go in the storage unit at the time I was in a flat above one of the practices so I think that made life slightly easier that I could move out of that but yeah no I think organization side of things there was quite a big part of like organizing that went into it and I think I've probably in my brain is like mushed out the bits where I'm like oh my god that was a massive faff or that didn't work out I do distinctly remember my bank card getting declined in the supermarket and then my bank blocking all my cards when I first went to New Zealand and at the time I had quite a lot of jet lag and was just like oh this is not what I want I just want a chocolate bar (laughs) it's good that chocolate bars are the same the world round they still do the same job of saving you in those moments of emotional crashing yeah okay 
So then when you got back, I'm guessing you did go back to the job. How did that work out at the time? I didn't immediately go back. I had a job for a few months sort of in the interim. I had a very good relationship with my boss and one of the other senior vets and still do. I was just very open and honest with them and they were very open and honest with me. And I think girl who was the new grad the year previously, I think she'd been thinking of leaving and they were like, we know it's probably going to happen, but we're not quite sure when. Let's just keep in touch. So yeah, in the meantime, I worked in Somerset for a little while and they gave me a call one day and were like, she's off. Like, would you like your job back? And it it was an easy decision because, as I said, I had such a good relationship with a lot of my farmers and like the area had a lot of friends there. So it was a no brainer, really. Yeah, it just shows that that really open and honest communication is a benefit for all parties because then they obviously found recruiting easier and then you could go back. So that's really important. Did locuming ever sort of come in as an option or Um, was it not for you? I considered it. I looked into it. I think my concern with being a farm vet and doing it was I was worried I would just be doing TB testing and kind of like firefighting work. And actually what I really valued from being a farm vet was sort of that ongoing relationship with clients that tend to be kind of you adopt as your home whether they're your routine dairy clients whether they're sort of your beef herds that you kind of end up being there that that's actually what I really value from and still value from my job is that kind of long-standing relationship trust it doesn't then just become a reactive like firefighting job it becomes much more of a you feel like you actually help them and you can be more preventative you can make more suggestions you can kind of like you know how their system works better and I think you both then get more out of like the vet farmer relationship. Yeah no definitely we I think as vets farm vets we are in that unique position that it is quite a business to business relationship which is very different to small animals and very different to equine. So it's great that you love that part of your job. So I guess what then made you take the next step into the job you're in now? Uh, So that definitely uh, by no means was an easy decision. I think for a while I just got to the point that I felt like I was treading water a bit with clinical practice like especially if you do quite a bit of dairy work and you do quite a bit of sort of TB work and things like that it doesn't sound great but it's all quite like samey and like I think you get to a certain level where actually like most things are quite routine and like you've seen them or you're familiar with them and I think I lacked a sense of like challenge with it and I wasn't convinced that I wanted to go and do a certificate or anything I feel like I don't like exams or anything like that. And I was very much like, that's not a path like I personally want to go down. So I was feeling a bit like that. And I think the dynamics of the practice had changed a little bit, which is understandable because obviously in the time that like we've been graduated, you've gone from predominantly independent practices to predominantly corporate practices. And there are various changes that come with that. And when Brexit happened, we are in quite an export heavy area and I was suddenly having to do a lot of exports and I had managed throughout my whole career without getting a VDS letter and an export was what got me my first ever VDS letter. And I was just like, oh, 
that 24 page piece of paper that I had to repeatedly stamp and sign has come back to bite me and then unfortunately last September I um I was putting a cow in a crush and she managed to fracture my radius quite badly and that amongst sort of personal reasons so my partner's in the army and is often deployed and there were various things like that and I just thought you know what I think now's the time to just try something new but it wasn't a decision that I made lightly it was a decision that involved a lot of thinking I reached out to like an awful lot of people and people that I knew from vet school that had also sort of diversified into non-clinical roles I'm not a big Facebook person but I went on the vet stay go diversify and spoke to a couple of people that are mentors on there that had had similar kind of career paths to me and then had done something different and I very much tried to use as many resources as I could to I guess scope out what else was out there and what else I could do that's kind of how I've ended up in the role that I'm in now and like I feel like I've got that challenge now and I still feel like I help farmers and I help cattle but I feel I do it from a much more overarching kind of level and I've really enjoyed it, but it was definitely a very big and scary decision to make. I think worse than go, deciding to go to New Zealand. That's great to hear so many different options and actually being really honest about the risks of what are involved at each one. So now, would you like to, I guess, get onto the actual topic of today, why MSP <laughs> um, have allowed us to just chat away for a bit of time, and the topic of salmonella. So why should we as practicing vets care about it, look for it, worry about it? I guess because ultimately salmonella, I think, is one of those differentials that's probably ends up, unless you've got abortions or you have a group of animals with diarrhea, like I think salmonella tends to be one that's pretty low down on everybody's list. Like it's it's there, but it's not necessarily initially thought of. And actually with salmonella, there is a massive range of clinical signs, both clinical and subclinical that you can see. And they include your classic things like abortion, diarrhea, you can get septicemia in young calves. But I mean, you can also see things like um, reduced milk yields that can affect growth rates. You can see things like dry gangrene. Um, It can be involved in sort of the BRD complex. It can be involved in joint ills and things like that. And I think it wasn't until when I started getting involved with salmonella in this job that I thought, there's actually loads of stuff I just don't think I was aware that it can be involved in it can be caused and I think the big reason for kind of wanting to come on and talk to you is that we were involved with a study that was conducted in sort of conjunction with the SRUC in Scotland that looked at quarterly bulk milk sampling for salmonella Dublin antibodies um, across the UK and found that the prevalence rate was actually 40% amongst dairy herds which I think was significantly higher than a lot of people were anticipating. I've definitely noticed that there are areas of the country that are more prevalent so for example um, up in Scotland in some parts of northern England and in Wales like a lot of people are already aware of salmonella a lot of people are actually already vaccinating and have been for a while But I think there's a lot of parts of the country where people actually aren't even considering it as a differential. Like there's a lot of things, I think, especially as dairy farmers, like they're made to monitor now based on sort of quarterly bulk milk sampling and salmonella is not anything that's on 
any of those this and actually when you think about it it really is quite a significant disease and it's also zoonosis so why on earth if we've got kind of a zero prevalence of 40 percent antibodies just for one type of salmonella why aren't we looking for it more no i definitely put myself in the category of for me it was always you know the mass mortality rates in calves or the, the scour outbreaks when i've got involved in it and occasionally as a maybe a last resort oh this test hasn't come back as this in, a, in an abortion storm and then you throw it in at the end when you're discussing to the farmer oh maybe it's that but we don't know quite what strains it might be and you sort of talk yourself out of doing any more investigation so you hinted at the milk testing is that sort of one of the better ways to look at it or what other diagnostics should we be looking at? Um, I think in terms of diagnostics if you've got sort of an acute clinical case so for example you've got abortions or you've got a group of dying calves or you've got quite a severe diarrhea outbreak like um definitely culture culturing salmonella is is the better option um you can culture it from feces the sensitivity is a bit it can be a bit hit and miss but it is reasonably reliable um definitely don't use pooled samples if you can avoid it because obviously pooled samples you're just potentially mixing animals that may be infected or may not be infected maybe shedding maybe shedding at different levels whereas you want to like do it at the highest possible availability for finding it post-mortems are obviously the best to try and find it if that's something that's available to you um in terms of looking at serology animals actually take about four to six weeks to zero convert and you see the presence of salmonella antibodies so like one-off serologies in outbreak situations really isn't very helpful you're far better off using serology in terms of sort of a monitoring or screening if you're concerned or you want to like look for it. Um, okay, so yeah, we've talked about still those outbreaks that do happen as well as those grumbling on problems. Do we think then that you said it's more common in, say, the Scotland and Wales areas or northern regions? Do you see it then more as an endemic disease with a lot of subtler sort of underlying yeah. signs? Or? So it, it definitely can be endemic. Um, salmonella is a really resilient bacteria, so it's very hardy. It can survive an awful long time in soils and stagnant water and things like that. Um we don't think it replicates much in those areas, but it's just a very sort of, it can survive quite extreme temperatures. It's just quite resilient. So I'd know that definitely areas like that, they've been isolating the very specific same types of salmonella sort of 20 years in the same area. So we know that it hangs around. And in those situations, like it is endemic. And obviously when something's endemic, like because there's a degree of varying immunity in the animals that it's affecting you do get much milder clinical signs um so you're more likely to see your kind of subclinical effects with kind of your production losses perhaps your slightly slower growth rate your slightly reduced milk yield you might get like the odd abortion if you're coming across like a naive animal being introduced you could have it playing a playing a bit of a role as we said in like brd or if you've got like joint ills and things like that whereas if you've got your naive herds 
that like in the areas where it isn't as common or for example if you're introducing naive animals into an endemic situation that's when you're getting things like your abortion storms your huge calf mortality and things like that and actually I think there's somewhere that said I read you can get up to 25% of your animals abort if it's a, like a naive herd that's coming into contact with salmonella. So it's pretty catastrophic. And actually, I think when I've spoken to farmers or vets that are using Bovivac S, the vaccine, a lot of them have said that when they initially got salmonella, it was incredibly catastrophic. And the vaccine just immediately helped. And now they wouldn't really consider stopping it because they've seen how catastrophic it can be if it hits you and you're naive. Yeah, just that massive risk, I guess, to the naive animals. Um, so one of the things that I think as the practicing vet out there that maybe ignores salmonella at their peril, they're concerned about all the different strains involved. Um, is that something we should be worrying about when we're looking into testing or is it mainly the Dublin that we can focus on? So, I mean, Dublin is the most prevalent. It has been the most prevalent for about the last 22 years in APA reproducer report yearly. And that is usually Dublin is about 60% of the submissions that they get. That's what they find. The other common one is Typhimerium and Endaca. Dublin is one that I think we can easily, that's what sort of ELISA tests and things are designed for. That's the one that we can kind of easily look for that's the most common one typhimerium the vaccine works against which is great mdaca unfortunately is a type c and they can culture it but that's as far as we can get and if you find it mdacas are often linked to contaminated feed sources and wildlife and things like that so if we get quite a lot of queries about that because our vaccine doesn't provide any protection for type c's and that's ultimately the direction that we have to point people down is that that's where you've got to start looking at like whether you've changed any feed sources whether you've potentially got any vermin access things like that because unfortunately currently we, we can't do anything about that so you're hinting at then from a control point of view then um sort of biosecurity and vaccines are our two options can we oh, do them both at the same time or biosecurity you... is key like I would say think of salmonella a bit like yoni's control. So salmonella is very fecal oral transmitted. So a lot of the principles for yoni's control, which people will obviously be a lot more familiar with, are very, very relevant to salmonella control. So just good hygiene practices, you know, making sure that your carving box hygiene is as good as it can be. You know, the management of your weaned and pre-weaned calves and that they're not kind of near your adult cattle, that you're, you've got good drainage, like you're avoiding sort of vermin if you can, avoiding feeding waste milk, um, trying to use piped water instead of natural water sources, sort of all of maintaining a closed herd if you can or practicing sort of strict biosecurity and quarantine if you are buying anything in, knowing what you're buying in. All of that is vital. And then I think vaccine then plays a role within that which is kind of how we've got a salmonella risk assessment tool which is both a paper version or a very snazzy app and what that does is that looks at all those different areas of biosecurity and works out where your weak points are 
and where you could look to try and improve that biosecurity. And actually, if you're looking at that for salmonella, that again is quite often something I say to vets in clinical practice is just think of yonis. It's exactly the same principles. It's the same kind of things you want to avoid. No, that's really good because it's becoming the biosecurity crosses so many things, you know, with TB, we're saying that's quite like yonis um, and now salmonella. So biosecurity is something that we inherently probably know a lot about, but it's a new topic. So sometimes having a bit of a framework to go through is really helpful. So you mentioned there the app or the the paper-based version. How does that work? Um, So basically, it's just broken down into six sections. So things like your calving area, your management of your pre-weaned calves, your management of your weaned calves, your management of your adult herd. And it just looks into different things, for example, like what you're doing in terms of hygiene of your calving box and your calving equipment, um, what your drainage is like, whether you're a closed herd, whether you're buying in any stock, whether you're feeding your waste milk to your calves. And basically how that works is MSD love a checklist and they love a traffic lighted checklist. They go through those questions with your farmer that then effectively generates scores that then land you in red amber or green depending on how you've scored so if you've scored say green for your management of all your cows and your calves and things fab but actually your calving box is amber red you know that for that farmer that's where they need to concentrate their efforts on because that's where their point of weakness is if it's going to come in if it hasn't come in that's sort of where where might be a possible source so it's just kind of a tool to help I guess highlight and direct because I think it's very important for farmers we can often give them so much information but actually giving them a few things to do at once like just a couple of things kind of ensures that they're then done rather than being like here's an entire list of things that I think you should do better like whereas if you can say right okay actually your carving area we really didn't score very well here are two things that we can do and we can do relatively quickly and easily that are actually going to make a massive difference to that and just start there yeah it's all about that return on investment and biosecurity it's so easy to forget one thing like water or vermin control so the checklist helping you to make sure all those questions are asked and then you do end up with hundreds of things so just knowing right we'll just work on this area now and you can always reassess it in six months or a year's time and see if things have changed whereas I really like that way of it just been a bit of an evidence base but actually a way of you and the farmer working together you said that the relationship is so important but coming out with a useful end goal Yeah, and something that they're actually going to do as well and want to do. And I think if if you can kind of highlight to them, but then give it to them in like a manageable chunk, then you're hopefully setting them up so they actually do what you ask them to do is the aim of the game. That is always the aim. So thank you very much. Is there When we're talking about salmonella testing and maybe a vet listening to this thinking, okay, yeah, I've probably been missing it out. Where should they start? If you had one hint or tip, Um, I think it actually causes loads of clinical signs. So I think it should always be on your differential list. Um, I think particularly in dairies, we do loads of bulk milk screening for various different diseases. Like it's not hard to just add salmonella to that and actually just screen for it quarterly and see what's going on. If it's on 40% of dairy farms in the UK anyway, highly likely it's going to be somewhere around you and given that it's so resilient in the environment, I think 
it should be something we're just looking for a bit more and just having it on our list maybe slightly higher up that it is there and actually it's there in a slightly bigger presence than we maybe originally thought it was. No, that's really useful to have it always on our differential list and maybe put it on some quarterly bulk melts of any dairies which you think have got something underlying that you're not sure of or just are at what you deem to be a high risk herd I guess. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. That was really enlightening, both about your career path and the many different steps you've taken, and also, of course, about everything salmonella-based. And I hope all our listeners will quickly look up that app or, of course, the paper-based version and to get a bit more excited about biosecurity and where to start. Thank you for listening as ever, but if you have any other topics you'd like us to discuss here on Cattlecast, then please let us know whether that be through an email, a phone call, or of course all our social media. So, until next time.